1: What's up fam, this is Jay from Push Black. And as you know, over here, we're passionate about building black power and taking control of our liberation. One of the ways to build power together is through massive, unprecedented voter turnout. Every person in our community matters. That means you, you matter, and your vote matters. Tuesday, November 8th is election day. Put that in your phone, Make a plan for when you're going to go vote and help three people in your life make their plans. Hold each other accountable. Make it happen. Visit pushblackvotes.com for more information and a pledge to vote in 2022. Peace.
0: From a young age, we're taught that vulnerability isn't for black people. It makes sense. To sit in vulnerability is to be exposed and defenseless. It lays bare your body and voice and puts your fullest self on display. That ain't easy, especially when history has shown the danger in standing up and using our voices. But every story has two sides. And history has also shown that when we tell our own stories when we express our truths change is inevitable healing is inevitable i'm len from push black and you're listening to black history year believe it or not we're all artists we're creators and griots we're storytellers with something powerful to say problem is So many of these powerful stories, both collective and personal experiences, are buried deep. And sometimes we're holding the shovel, perpetuating generational wounds. But storytelling is a healing art that calls for vulnerability and sharing truth. Fortunately for us, we are each an artist and today's guest will help us tap into our artistic nature to heal ourselves and our community. Dr. Reva Hines is an Alphonse Jackson professor of political science at Southern University and A&M College in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She also holds certification in narrative therapy and in community storytelling. She is keenly interested in utilizing storytelling as a conduit for empowerment and Resiliency among marginalized groups in her community through an equity lens. She's also the founding president of the Red Stick Bras and All Project, a nonprofit organization that uses storytelling to address discrimination, stigma and exclusion of our unhoused women in need in the Red Stick area of Baton Rouge. Now, before we jump into a great interview between Dr. Riva and Jay from Push Black, I have a story to share. It's about a storyteller who risked it all to share his horrific experience of enslavement. He was kidnapped as a child, taken far from home, and enslaved. Who would have thought Olada Equiano would be the voice to unravel this cruel institution with the pen his weapon of choice? Olada Equiano loved his life in the small tight-knit village in the Igbo province now known as Southern Nigeria. He was 11 years young when all of it was stripped away when the white men came. He was taken to the West Indies and then shipped to America. There, Equiano was sold as a slave to a Royal Navy officer and sold twice more, however, educated himself despite the terror. He moved to Britain where Equiano wrote the first book of its kind, the slave narrative titled The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Olada Equiano. It exposed slavery as an oppressive institution and marked the beginning of its transformation. His book was an instant success and the first edition sold out almost immediately. Translated into many languages, it opened eyes across the world and was a contributing factor in the Slave Trade Act of 1807, which officially banned the slave trade in Britain. Equiano was able to convey the horrific realities of slavery with honesty and shared it with the world. Like him, we must continue to document and amplify our stories to raise awareness around anti-Black violence and the realities of our lives. Telling the truth matters.
1: Reva, what does Black liberation look like to you?
2: I think we live in an environment now where um, Black liberation and Black thought is constantly being compared to what America wants or what people want. And unfortunately, this mark and measure um, happens to be what the predominant culture is, which is usually to the detriment of Black people in the world. be it black uh, people in America, or even when we're talking about pan-Africanism. I kind of tried to fight this phrase about we wanted to be treated equally like everybody else. Uh, that is not the measure of liberation for me. Uh, the measure for liberation for me would be a world wherein we can be our authentic selves, we can bring our, 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 our true forms in and be in a space where we can move seamlessly without constantly, uh, feel like we have to defend ourselves or act a certain way or behave in a, in, you know, in a certain, uh, accord.
1: Can you tell me a bit about how your work, uh, contributes to that destination of black liberation, uh, in the ways that you've described?
2: Sure. Um, one of the things that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an academician by profession, but, um, my passion lies in doing work for the community. I've never considered myself a scholar as much as a scholar advocate. And uh, one of the things that brings me great joy is, is this concept of storytelling. And, um, and, and I try to weave this concept of storytelling into, into my work, uh, not as an, as an academician as well, uh, but also as a community advocate. And uh, I, I do that in my, in my work uh, as a professor because I work at an HBCU, and I feel it's, it's, it's um, really liberating when you start listening to people's stories because people bring their authentic selves when they tell their stories. And I find it uniquely empowering to do the same when I'm engaging with uh, communities, especially uh, vulnerable populations in my city and in my work.
1: When you say you're engaging with the vulnerable communities, um, what does that look like?
2: My my passion is to bring this concept of telling stories uh, among people. I think we all grew up learning and hearing stories. I know I did. Um, I, I grew up ar- around a lot of folk culture uh, and, a, and a lot of... Um, you know, stories with morals and proverbs, and I've always been fascinated by them. So I've always been this quest of how can we weave the two uh, communities and, and stories into really working, into shifting the narrative, um, into um, creating a space where people can bring their lived experiences and not be ashamed of doing so.
1: Can you describe what it looks like when you... Uh engage with someone in that way, and they're able to show up in their truest form through storytelling in ways that they uh, may not otherwise.
2: Yeah. Storytelling and community um, engagement, community development is not an end. Um, it is a process. And there are so many uh, concepts that go into or processes that go into this this, this term of storytelling that gets thrown around a lot. And that's one of the main things that I I, when I I, um, talk about storytelling, I'd like to emphasize the fact that we don't jump into storytelling as an end. We jump into storytelling as a process. And what I mean by that is, you know, it has so many, the components to it uh, starts with building trust, uh, with creating certain norms, cultural norms, to be aware of these cultural norms, to to engage in transfer of knowledge, to engage in some learning and also some unlearning, and to facilitate that in a way that that creates emotional connections among uh, the people that you're uh, engaging in and telling stories with and hearing stories from. So the engagement concept of storytelling is a process for me uh, because it has so many components to it. Uh, when communities come together to talk about stories, uh, they are engaging in a creative process that is um, not only compelling, but also gives them ownership on um, what it is that they are trying to say. Um, one of the things that I believe in is this concept of asset-based community development, uh, which is using... Many of the vulnerable communities have, have you know been through... Uh, are the victims, rather, of systemic racism and injustices, generational trauma, generational violence. So how do we break those chains in a way that allows them to not only liberate themselves from within, but also bring change around them? And so when we are cognizant of this concept of storytelling as a process, not simply people telling stories, but building these connections, we start seeing slow change.
1: Something you said stuck out to me around Ownership of what they're trying to say. Why is that important?
2: When we engage in 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 telling these stories, it's always done with a purpose. Sometimes we meet with um, um, you know senior citizens. Sometimes we meet with um, uh, foster kids. Sometimes we meet with high risk high school uh, students. When we meet with a variety of different individuals. Um, there's usually a purpose that we come together and tell stories. We're doing sort of some work right now with the street committee. Who these are folks who have been burned out and have been addressing crime on the streets, and we kind of teach them self care and 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 professional development. Uh, when we are doing all of these things, it's it's important for people to bring their lived experiences to the table. I think we as people tell stories and. Uh, like to hear stories that we can relate to. Uh, so when we take ownership of our stories, the ownership translates into you know promotion um, and, and amplification of what they are as individuals. It, it shows an investment in what they feel is important to them. And it is also central on how I, as a person who's facilitating a storytelling session, understands them and how they communicate to me. So I think ownership of those stories are reflective, not only what they are as people, but what their lived experiences are, but also opportunities for policymakers and lawmakers and for the society in general to see what those lived experiences look like um, and, and how we can as a society change together. Stories from Black communities have a very different cultural perspective to them that we all have to be very cognizant of uh, because there is so much to unpack and unfurl and and learn and unlearn that you know this ownership then becomes very important if we are to really understand what folks are going through
1: can you give one or two examples of um, what you mean by that
2: yeah about five years ago we had received a grant from robert wood johnson foundation on looking at uh, housing as a public health issue uh here in baton rouge and we looked at uh, we studied north baton rouge and uh, South Baton Rouge, and uh, North Baton Rouge is a predominantly uh, uh, black part of town. And South Baton Rouge is a predominantly a uh, white part of town. Um, you know, housing is a public health issue from the prism of not as a, as a structure, but as uh, it relates to uh, housing affordability, housing conditions, uh, and neighborhood conditions. And um, you know, the 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 stories that we got from. Uh, South Baton Rouge uh, was was a bit different because you know there's there there are um, a plethora of hospitals available. There are uh, eating healthy eating options that are available. You know there is an amazing mall that is there and since very abundant in resources. So the stories that we gleaned from uh, South Baton Rouge, uh, you know, talked about the kind of the privilege that came with that. Uh, the stories that we got from North Baton Rouge were. As amazing as, as, as we got from, you know, the other part of the city, but there is something that we learned about this uh, process that opened our eyes. So I remember distinctly we went into one of the sessions and, and uh, we were engaging in storytelling along with another group that was there. And someone from the other group, uh, we were talking to a zip code that has seen a lot of violence. And so we were talking about, you know, one of the uh, other facilitators asked, well, you know, why is it that you're staying in, in, in this in this part of town? You know, there's so much violence. There's uh, the paucity in housing and property values are going down. And, you know, they just went through a list of all the things that that, that were bad in that zip code. And this, this elderly young woman, I'll never forget, uh, stood up and said i am 72 years old and i have lived in this neighborhood all my life and she said i can move if i want to but I choose not to because this is my home and this is where i belong and instead of asking me everything of uh, you know everything that is wrong in in this neighborhood and telling me why i'm not moving why don't you ask me what is right why don't you ask me why i don't stay why I stay here and why I don't move, and why don't you ask me what my needs are, and then you know, uh, try make a way to to address them. And I think that's where we see the differences on if we don't know the culture and uh, you know how the stories can take a very different form uh, as a facilitator. But it also tells you about the the differences in perspective of the black joy that comes with being in a space that others might see as being. You know, ridden with poverty and ridden with crime. And why does she stay here? But this young, this young lady took took pride in the fact that this was her home, and she was willing to put everything on the line to to make this a better place for her and for generations to come. So I think that's one of the examples that has always stood out for me when I talk about uh, storytelling in white spaces versus storytelling in black spaces. And it goes back again to that point of ownership that you had brought uh, earlier.
1: I appreciate that uh, illustration. I can imagine how that would be um, an eye-opening sort of revelation there. So thank you for that. I'd like for you to dig a little deeper in sort of what your history is with uh, storytelling uh, in your community and how it brought you here.
2: Um, Yeah, so I think we all are storytellers in a way, because, you know, we have all read stories, heard stories, and we all have unique stories that we want to share. So I think that's always been at the core of uh, my life and my center. Uh, But I think as a concept, because storytelling, you know, everyone engages in some kind of story. As we are talking today, we are engaging in storytelling, right? We're exchanging uh, emotions and information. And, but I think as a concept of Community development, Um, storytelling was introduced to me when I was a fellow with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in 2016. That is when I got introduced to storytelling as a concept. I've always done so in the community without really knowing it as a concept. Um, And as a concept, it proved to be a really great tool because I was able to hone that skill. I was able to nourish it in a way that actually became A great skill set for me to have, and and for me to understand and bring forth the voices of the community. So as 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 a solid concept, I would say it began in two thousand sixteen, and ever since then, it actually began in in that process of this this work that I was doing between North Baton Rouge and South Baton Rouge, and uh, when when we saw the how empowering that was, because even in that research, there was stark differences in how policymakers versus residents uh, you know answered answered our, our, uh, um, um, our queries and engaged in this in telling stories. so um, and ever since then you know this 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 seamless applicability uh, of stories into not just community development I've also been able to use it with my grant partner. In uh, engaging in healing arts and healing communities from trauma, generational trauma and from the art of letting go and things of this nature that talk about self-care that I think, you know, uh, we don't have time sometimes to do as people of color.
1: Can you um, speak a bit on the, the healing arts part? What does that look like?
2: So, healing art as a process is taking art and whatever that art is, um, to to bring about some emotional awareness and some self-emotional connection, uh, and to understand the self uh, um, in an empowering way. Um, when we all are artists, we all do everything with some form of movement, with some form of rhythm, with some form of pattern, whether it's breathing, whether it's writing, whether it's drawing, whether it's coloring, whether it's it's music, and uh, whether it's movement. So how can, so this concept of healing art looks at how can you take all these concepts and translate that into self-care and self-love and address burnout and just take some time wherein you are sitting with yourself and your thoughts um, and, and your connect, uh, emotional connections and and just letting the sparks go wild, so to speak
1: Self-care, I think, is something that has been talked about a little bit more recently, but I'm hearing you say is self-care and self-love. Talk a bit about um, you know why that is important to the black community in ways that you have seen that through the healing arts be. Transformative for those who participate in that in ways that you're describing.
2: Mm -hmm. Black lives lived experiences are so unique. The the cultural recognition of that becomes very important. You know, as we talked about earlier, there are so many systemic things that are still in place that not only have Black lives gone, you know, uh, through, lived through rather, generational trauma, but there are things that are happening now that are adding on the layers and layers of trauma uh, that exists. So if you look around society these days, just getting up in the morning and leaving your house and going to work and coming back, uh, there are so many uh, microaggressions and aggressions uh, that, that Black lives have to face. There is a lot of tension that we carry. There is a lot of burden that we carry, not just, you know, our ancestral burdens, but the burdens of the present. And I think these burdens of ours then will grow to the ancestral burdens that our future will carry. So how do we, or when do we, or aren't we in the Black community allowed to... Have joy, experience happiness, experience just a moment for ourselves where we can just smile and just connect with us as individuals. So, when we are talking about self care and self love and healing, let's take painting, for example. When you're sitting down there and you have a piece of paper and you have canvas and you have colors and you're 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 just kind of pouring your day's emotions onto this piece of paper. That is as close as releasing all the tension of the day onto that canvas. And I think that is one of the reasons why people loved watching Bob Ross. Have you ever watched Bob Ross when he <laughs> yeah. painted? And I think that's why people loved watching him on TV because think about it, you never really did anything. Bob Ross painted and you just kind of sat with him and you looked at him for half an hour. Mm. Um, But why was that a great feeling to have? Because at that moment, all you were doing is, as you were even watching him, probably visually connecting with him as he was painting as though you were physically doing so. But more so, I think you... We're focused on that particular work of art, and that is all you were doing at that point. Also, art allows us to create, and I think as human beings, we love to create things. We love things that we create. I think that allows us in the Black community to feel this joy of having something that came into fruition with just pure and true love and passion at that very moment. That is just so beautiful. Um, We also use healing arts to do group art projects where uh, we all sit together and actually do an art project that the entire group has worked on. We make a collage out of it. And we find that to be like the most empowering uh, healing arts uh, methodology that we have used because people then see that it is not just their individual, uh, you know, um, uh, emotion that is coming out into this art, but they're actually able to connect those pieces with the folks sitting around them at the table.
1: I think you were getting to sort of the power in doing this as a uh, as a community. You know, what does that look like? What does it feel like in those rooms? But also, can we imagine what it looks like, you know, at scale on a broader level across uh, the community, Black communities worldwide?
2: Nowadays, they actually talk about community art um, as social art projects, uh, but it is... It is a social practice, right? It is a social practice where where people come together and uh, and, and, and create something beautiful. They come together. Uh, and in creating whatever it is, um, people might see this just as oh folks painting. but uh, when you facilitate a session, these are individuals who are sitting together and talking and expressing and and expressing their concerns and expressing the issues. So, so going back to this question of, of uh, you know, black experiences and community projects, um, you know, I think the process is so intentional uh, and the process is such a great way for folks to sit down and tease out information. This concept of uh, collaborative, cooperative method of individuals coming together is a beautiful way of folks to, not only network, but network weave with one another, right? So you can always network, but what does it mean to make those those connections as we are painting? Uh, what is it to be in community as we are painting? You know, you also when folks are in these sessions, many a times, uh, many of the things that we often hear on the common things is, I always thought I felt that way.
1: I appreciate that, and it sounds like there's uh, this process of finding power, collective power through this process of being vulnerable uh, with each other and exposing things that you may have thought were just you, but they may not be unique to just an individual.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, also um, you'd be surprised the kind of, you know, uh, social awareness that that this, these kind of things bring about, uh, the type of social change practices that... Uh, um, um, these community projects bring about. And I know some of the cities, you know, they do these community-based murals where different artists are coming together and doing these city beautification projects. It's empowering because you are engaging in cross-collaboration with one another in a way that is very natural and very organic, right? It's not forced. Usually when people do things together, it's like a social meet and greet where people are formally sitting down and having conversations. But imagine 15 people around a piece of canvas just naturally connecting to each other and they didn't even know that they were doing so.
1: In terms of the work that you all are doing, if I'm understanding right, there is a part of it that is directly um, in support of the people in the community that are telling these stories and going through the healing process and creating the art. Um, And I think, is there also a part that's used to put these stories in this work in front of Um, folks who are making decisions in the community or about the community. Is that right?
2: Both aspects, right. And uh, so there's a little, you know, one of the things as an academician that I, my passion lies in social justice issues and social justice policy. So um, the work that we did in 2016 with Robert Wood Johnson Foundation was done uh, you know, and we have to be careful with, with how we do our work because we definitely are not a policy advocacy uh, organization because then you kind of start going into the realm of lobbying and you know there are certain things that we can't do. So we try not you know, to cross that line. But in effect, we like for our community to be drivers of change. Uh, so I'll give you a classic example of one of the studies we did when we talked about housing as a public health issue. We had community conversations, that's what we call them. And these community conversations were, you know, residents coming together from various zip codes um, and sitting down and having conversations with uh, my grant partner and myself and graduate students and kind of talking about, just having a conversation, right? And talking about housing. We wanted to inform policymakers uh, and we wanted to bring awareness to policymakers on the things that the residents are going through. So when we asked our residents about, in, in various zip codes about, you know, tell us a little bit about your, about housing as a public health issue, about, uh, you know, um, uh, neighborhood conditions and housing conditions. Um, housing affordability, of course, they went into the heart of the matter. you know, they talked about transportation. They talked about lack of healthy eating options. They talked about access to, and this was, we conducted this, 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 this conversation during a time when there was not, when there, the only standing emergency ER facility in North Baton Rouge had closed. So meaning there was no ER facility present in North Baton Rouge at that time. Mm. And so we are talking to these folks and they're t- telling us about all these things. They're telling us about, you know, if it's four o'clock in the evening and someone in North ban has a heart attack, you know, driving to the hospital is going to take them 45 minutes on 4 p.m. on a Friday evening. So it might be just better to kind of accept their fate and stay home om- among loved ones kind of things, right? Really mm. things that that, 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 that that would shock you. And, um, and so... We are hearing some really heartfelt issues come out of the community during these conversations. And so then we also just, you know, said it would be great to ask these same very questions to policymakers. And when we say policymakers, we are talking not simply about, not simply of elected officials, but we're talking about anybody who holds the key to bring about some policy change. And so when we asked the same questions, my grandpartner and I, to the to the to to the policymakers, and we asked about housing as a public health issue, about neighborhood conditions, housing conditions, etc., the answers were more on: uh, is the housing up to code? Is the grass cut? Are we, you know, following zone zoning restrictions and zoning laws and things of that nature? So we got a very different story from the community conversations we had with our. With our residents versus in in North benders versus the conversations that we had with policymakers. This is not to say one is good or one is bad, but it is to speak to the aspect of many a times we sit down, uh, and I, and it goes back to my point uh, about about black lived experiences and the uniqueness that comes with that. Is that the policymakers' understanding of housing as a public health issue was very different than the understanding of residents of housing as a public health issue. The same questions rendered two very different stories uh, to us. And we had an aha moment at that point because many times in society we sit down and think about why is it, you know, there are so many problems, why can't they be solved? And there seems to be a disconnect on how these problems are defined. Mm. And I think that's where these stories become then relevant because the ability then to bring these stories to the policymakers, to let them see this is actually what the problem is. The community is is not going through a, they're not worried about the zoning restrictions and they're not worried about their grass not being cut and they're not worried about, you know, staying to with fire code, there they, are bigger things that they're really concerned about on a day-to-day basis. That those are the things that need to be heard. So when the, the context starts being framed in a certain way and the shift starts happening, I think then it starts opening eyes as to what the real problems are and how real change can take place.
1: That's great. And this is through storytelling, through the community owning their stories and sharing their stories. Absolutely great is there any final words you'd like to share
2: what i would like to say in closing is that storytelling comes with a whole lot of responsibility and one of them being cultural cognizance uh and cultural awareness and that translates to knowing who you who your community is and what your community is um so as we engage in stories, let us be mindful of the individuals that are impacted by these stories of the individuals who are telling these stories and and, and understand that it's a process that we are engaging in. And um, to understand that black voices need to be lifted in a way uh, that 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 they have not been before and in a way that is unique to them. So when engaging in stories with Uh, communities that have these unique experiences Uh, we need to be mindful of those experiences, we need to respect those experiences and we most definitely need to engage in these conversations from uh, an asset based conversation rather than a deficit based conversation
1: Rebo, I appreciate you thank you so much
2: thank you, thank you for having me
0: To learn more about the important work that Dr. Hines is doing for the people of Baton Rouge, visit RedStickBrasAndAllProject.com. That's RedStickBrasAndAllProject.com.
1: At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about Black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most folks do five or ten bucks a month, but really, everything makes a difference. Thank you for supporting the work. Black History Year is a production of Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. Our team includes Tarek Alani, Brooke Brown, Tasha Taylor, and Lily Workner. Producing this episode, we have Sydney Smith and Lynn Webb for Push Black, and Ronald Young Jr., who also edits the show. Black History Year's executive producers are Michael L. Sessa for Limina House and Julian Walker for Push Black. Peace.